This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we are talking to uh, two of the foremost experts in the world on the history of the Second World War. We are marking the 75th anniversary, believe it or not, of the end of World War II in Europe, uh, what has long been called VE Day. Uh, We have with us uh, Dr. Gordon Nick Muller, who is a distinguished historian and former vice chancellor at the University of New Orleans. He was the founding president and CEO of the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Uh, I have the the great privilege of being uh, on on the counselor's board for the the museum, and it's an extraordinary, extraordinary museum, probably the best history museum in the world, I think. And uh, he's also joined on the podcast today by a friend, Dr. Robert Satino, who's the executive director of the Institute for the Study of War and Democracy at the National World War II Museum. Rob is also the Samuel Zamuri Stone Senior Historian at the museum, and he's an award-winning teacher, taught for many years uh, at the University of North Texas, and uh, is a distinguished author. He has written uh, books beyond the number I can count. Uh, Some of my favorites, The Wehrmacht Retreats, Fighting a Lost War, Death of the Wehrmacht, you can sense a theme in these books, and The German Way of War, From the Thirty Years' War to the Third Reich. Uh, Nick and Rob, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Wonderful to be here, Jeremy. Thanks for the invite. Uh, Our pleasure. Before we turn to our World War II experts, we have uh, Zachary Suri here, of course, with his scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem, Zachary? And to dust we shall return. Wow. Well, let's hear it. Before the war there was dust, and it was not of bones and bodies, and it was not of rubble and toppled concrete, and it was not of war but of peace. Before the war there was dust, and it was factory smoke and subway grime, and settled in the grass of London parks, to whom death was still the friendly old man. And then there was dust, whole miles of it falling from the sky like a sandstorm in the desert, except it was noisy and filled with the sounds of terror. And then in the morning there was still dust when they trudged out of the subway tracks to see who had been killed and which buildings were gone, dust like painful reminders of biblical mechanics. Before the war there was dust, the remnants of old porcelain and gas lamp soot, peaceful, beautiful, Dresden dust, and it was washed away by the river. And then there was dust. It rose from hidden ovens with the remains of brutalized bodies, and it floated down over the valleys like a reminder of the existence of conscience, as more died, and still more. And then there was dust. We came creeping over the Frauen Kirsche in cold February, and firebombed Saxony into extraterrestrial blood rubble, and the Elba was clogged with ash and dust. And then there was dust glass, and we sneaked in over Hiroshima and let loose over the city a hellfire we didn't really understand, and the dust was of fingernails, crystallized blood, and rubble. After the war there was dust, as if we had to remember always because it was always there, even under the brows of the deniers. After the war we were in awe, we watched movies of valors in theaters, and we sprayed champagne in the streets, and a generation came home and made a different generation. And there was the dust 
floating like flotsam in the rivers, caked on the cobblestones and rebuilt palaces, and there was the dust. Remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Well, there's a lot of dust in your poem, Zachary. What what does the dust symbolize? Well, the dust is really a metaphor for the destruction of war and and how war remains and the scars of war remain even decades and decades after the war. In, in, in the lives of people and in the buildings and everything, we, we all have the remnants of the war within us. Wow. Very well said. Uh, Nick, one of the things I struggle with uh, when, when describing the war to students is to, is to describe the magnitude of the destruction. How, how do you think about that? How do you describe that to people? Well, uh, yeah, and that's uh, the poem is a, a great introduction to that answer, I guess, or to my answer that the the war is characterized by just tremendous violence on a scale that uh, has never before experienced in, in human history. When you talk about sixty five million dead and forty million of those are innocent civilians uh, under bombs or genocide, uh, concentration camps. And just the, the violence, the convulsive violence that gains so much momentum uh, and accelerated uh, uh, toward the end of the war. Uh, certainly in the, the last year of the war and the last month of the war, uh, a month or so before VE Day, it was, uh, it was gruesome. I mean, uh, Germans were being, the pincers were coming in from uh, the Allied forces on uh, east and west and uh, crushing uh, crushing the, the, the Wehrmacht and uh, the 8th Air Force and the 15th Air Force just bombing the heck out of uh, all of the major cities of Hamburg and, and the Rhineland area and Berlin. And so it was just pulverizing uh, uh, the country. It was, uh, and for America too. I mean, most of the 418,000, probably nearly 400,000 uh, Americans were already dead uh, a month or two before uh, uh, the war ended, and uh, and then you have these. It's just it's just gruesome, um, uh, and I think it's uh, it's very hard for people to get their their arms around uh, the the magnitude of of, of that violence uh, at that time, and and of course at the same time you've got in within Germany the the whole Third Reich is just spiraling. Uh, downward, um, and you know Hitler's suicide, and uh, and the Wehrmacht. Uh, I mean, Rob could jump in there, but I mean, I think probably half a million uh, uh, troops in the Wehrmacht surrendered in the in the first uh, week of May. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Rob, you're the foremost expert on this. What? what well, you know, I mean, the, yeah, I I come from the German perspective mainly. I mean, that's what I've written about. But you know, I mean, I, I don't. It's not just a statistical matter. So. In Victor Davis Hanson's new book, he points out on, you know, in the opening paragraph, if you look at the war from September 1939 to, you know, May of 1945, that uh, that is from the beginning of the war in Europe to the end of the war in Europe, is something like 20,000 people, 25,000 people died per day, per day. And so I guess the point I try to make to my students, Jeremy, um, when, you know, when I've been teaching this in university, <clears throat> There's an idea, I guess, the war goes, it, it starts and it gets real bad and then it kind of stumbles to an end. That right. was not World War II and certainly not World War II in Europe. It didn't stumble to an end. It came to a roaring climactic explosion in the last year. The last 12 months of World War II were by far the bloodiest 12 months of the war. 
Yeah. Nick, Nick has referred to this kind of just this, these explosive levels of violence. I, I'd, I'd go back, you know, into the 19th century. It, I, I feel remiss if I didn't quote the great Prussian sage Karl von Clausewitz. You know, he must be quoted. <laughs> I mean, I will quote him once per day. And, you know, that's been the bane of my children and my wife's existence over the years. Um, but, you know, Clausewitz talked about this re- these reciprocal reactions that one side does something and the other side feels feels compelled to top it. And, and then and it's back then it's back to the other side. And they just ratchet up the violence in these kinds of 19th and 20th century total wars until you have something at the end that you could not have imagined at the start. Um, Nick, Nick, I'm going to toot the museum's horn. You know, we have a film experience that we like visitors to see first at our National World War II Museum. And the film is entitled Beyond All Boundaries. Right. And and to me, it's the it's the it's the truest three words ever written about World War II. So, so Rob, why did the Germans surrender in early May when they did? The Japanese obviously fought through August, and we know now might have even fought longer. They were very close to continuing after the two atomic bombings. But why did the Germans surrender in early May? So, you know, Nick, I heard Nick mention the pincers coming in from both sides. So, you know, the strategic situation, all the indicators are in the red, you might say. The, the big Anglo-American host fully mechanized probably the most modern military force ever assembled in terms of its level of mechanization. It's coming in from the West, Soviet armies just pulverizing the Germans in the East and driving to the very gates of Berlin and then eventually into the city. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, Jeremy, we we're talking about VE Day, but there really were a series of them. The Germans in Northern Italy had already had a partial surrender at the end of April. There was a surrender of the troops in Northwestern Germany and the Netherlands, very beginning of May, there was another one for in southern Germany and Bavaria, uh, I think May 3rd or 4th. What was going on here is, uh, you know, war's not over and the Germans were still playing strategy. They were trying to drag the process out long enough that they could make, you know, partial surrenders in the West, that they could keep fighting in the East. Uh, every day, every week, uh, they, they, they stayed in the field in the East so the strategy ran. And by the way, this is not Hitler. Hitler's dead. This is the new Fuhrer, Car- uh, Karl Dönitz, the, the former naval commander. Right. Uh, he, he's he's playing for time, thinking that every, every week he can last longer in the East, more refugees and more German troops will be able to get to the West and surrender to the British or the Americans, which is presumably better treatment than you're getting if you surrender to the Soviets. I I think that's probably true on a number of levels. Yes. It's interesting to me. You know, we say the Germans didn't have a strategy. Hitler was a rotten strategist. And by the way, I I agree. But there's a there is still a strategy at the end of the war in which they're just they're trying to hold out, surrender partially to the West. And and then be able to stay in the field a little longer in the East. You know, naturally, Stalin got bruised feelings about that. He'd done the majority of the fighting and the majority of the dying to bring the third right to heel. And uh, he doesn't like, he, he thinks this smacks of some kind of deal, some kind of separate piece that the Western powers are making. His complaints eventually tell, you know, and that's when Eisenhower demands that the Germans send representatives to Reims in occupied France. That's General Yodel, a couple of other representatives. And on May 7th, they sign a once and for all uh, uh, surrender to everybody to go into effect on May 8th, hence VE Day. Now, if you don't, I don't want to take up too much time, but 
Stalin then wasn't having that. He didn't want to right. surrender in occupied France. He wanted to surrender in occupied Berlin. Of course. And that happened on th that conference. He he demanded more another delegation of Germans, not Yodel, but Keitel this time, the head of the OKW, Yodel's superior. And there's yet another surrender on, on May 8th. Um, by the time everything was on the dotted line, it was midnight had passed. And so that's why the Soviets and the Russians today still celebrate V-Day. They don't say V-E, but V-Day on May 9th. So right. it's a complicated situation. I don't know. Anytime you wind up with two surrenders at the end of a war, you're obviously in complex territory. Well, and I always tell students it's in some ways a precursor to the Cold War uh, yeah, at, yeah. at that moment. Yeah, uh, I, would I would back you up on that. Um, you have the Allies threatening to fall out. You, you have Stalin insisting on a second surrender. You have the Germans kind of, you know, having the upper hand for a moment, at least, you know, they have the, they seem to hold the initiative. They right. have to agree to surrender. Um, right. So there, it's, I, I, that's my, the point I've always told my students. It's a very, very complicated thing. Europe's big and you don't just have a referee hold up a checkered flag and, you know, suddenly the war is over. It's, it's too right. complex. Yeah, right. And when the Wehrmacht started uh, uh, surrendering too there in this first week, I mean, they wanted to surrender to the, to the Allies on the, <laughs> to the West. They didn't want, so they were fleeing the, uh, the, the Soviet troops and the recriminations and retribution they expected from the Soviets too. And, and there was mass migrations of people in an organized way for a few months beforehand, almost a million and a half people. What, what was it, Rob? Uh, Operation Operation Hannibal, I think. And so there was everybody, hordes of people were on the move and, and uh, Wehrmacht uh, finally saw the end in sight there and, and uh, was trying to... Uh, surrender to to the Americans or the Brits or the Canadians before they could surrender to the to the Red Army. You know, Jeremy, the, the thing that strikes me, too, and, and I, Nick is alluding to it right now, this kind of war termination is very unusual. That That's one right. side would fight not, not only to the bitter end, but well beyond the bitter end. This war had been lost for a year, maybe longer than that. The professionals and the German officer corps and, and general staff, they knew it. I mean, Dönitz, for example, he'd been one of the hardest core supporters of Hitler. Uh, Hitler's insane demands to hold out to the last man. And, and now Dönitz posing as the protector of the German civilian population in the East. It doesn't ring completely true for me. They could have saved a lot more lives by seeing the writing on the wall a year ago and surrendering. Sure, sure. Nick, how do we understand uh, Dwight Eisenhower's role in all of this? Can you walk us through uh, his leadership? He he comes out and I think legitimately is seen as as a hero. And we're, we live in a time uh, when we need heroes. <laughs> what can we learn from Eisenhower at the end of the war? Well, he uh, stuck to his mission to destroy the the army of, of Nazi Germany. And, uh, and of course, uh, a lot of people thought that... Uh, Going along with Patton, that he he should have gone ahead on into Berlin, but he didn't want to give up a hundred thousand American dead uh, for the Soviet uh, when the Soviet Red Army was virtually almost into Berlin already. So uh, he held to the uh, the commitments that were made about the the zones of, of of occupation and held his troops there. And I think many people regarded him uh, as a as a hero for that. But of course, he led as the supreme commander the the final destruction uh, of Germany from D-Day to the, to the end. And he managed to keep uh, all the Allied uh, leaders, uh, generals and admirals and, 
air marshals uh, uh, working together, and that was a heroic achievement uh, of, of its own, it, more so than his uh, his military strategic uh, field commander. I mean, Rob can talk about that too, but I mean, a lot of people think that he, he moved too slowly on too broad a front. There's a whole uh, controversy about whether or not they should have let the Sixth Army go in uh, uh, down around Strasbourg uh, much earlier and get across the Rhine, and he held that back. And his boys, Bradley and Patton, you know, went in where they did. And Max Hastings, a uh, great British historian, is very critical of Eisenhower and Ambrose for that. But I think uh, from America's point of view, uh, he got the job done. Uh, he basked in the in the glory of of of, of that, deservedly so. Uh, and he kept the coalition together and. You know, before Roosevelt died and then after him, Truman, uh, everybody was worried about bringing the war to an end. Uh, the body bags were coming home in big numbers, uh, and we still had a war to fight in the Pacific. But Eisenhower came out of the war with his, uh, with a halo around his head, I would say, uh, uh, for his leadership and, and just his great uh, personality. And everybody liked Ike. I mean, right. <laughs> like Ike was his campaign. Uh, and it, it rang true, right? R- Rob, what what about the liberation of the uh, concentration camps? That's that's a pivotal pivotal moment in many ways when Eisenhower goes and comments on this, and 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 in a, in a certain way does a a, a fact finding uh, mission. Yeah, uh, yeah. What do we understand about that? You know that uh, one of the I think signal moments of the end of the war is Eisenhower, of, of course, visiting the. The, the concentration camps, hundreds to 50 to 100,000 at a pop, human skeletons, dead bodies all over the place. It, it's, it's a horror show. We know about Nazi crimes essentially because Eisenhower did that. And then he insisted on having local German officials come and see it. And then he insisted on having Western reporters and photographers coming to see it. And he told them deliberately, take pictures of this so that later when people say, no way, that's impossible. No one would do that to another human being. You'll be ready with the evidence. And I just... Look, I, I just read a, a biography of, of Alfred Yodel, that is the German general who went and surrendered, signed the surrender instrument to Eisenhower at Rennes, the first one, the one on May 7th that went into effect on May 8th. You know, he was right next to Hitler the entire war, and he claimed after the war he didn't know a thing about the concentration camps. And he said it was, even if someone had told me, it wasn't my job. My job was to draw up military plans. And it strikes me that Eisenhower knew that leadership, modern military leadership in a global war of this sort had to have a political dimension. It wasn't enough just to say the third division goes to the left flank and the fourth division goes to the right flank. As important as those things are, you had to have a broader vision. Going back to Clausewitz, you fight wars because they're the continuation of politics. There has to be a political end in mind. And, right. and so for Eisenhower, yes, destroying the armed forces of Nazi Germany, that was the mission. But at the same time, m- making sure that people realize what the political ramifications of Nazism had been, uh, that too was part of his brief. And, and that's why I think Eisenhower, he stood tall in a lot of occasions in, uh, in American history. He never stood taller than when he made those re- reporters and photographers tour the camps and get the stories and take the pictures. And another uh, comment there on the, 
on the camps and the liberation of the camps by, uh, by the Americans and the British. Uh, that moment of liberation is uh, opening the gates uh, is a very, very powerful, very emotional moment. Uh, and I've been out to the Shoah Foundation five or six times. I have uh, they have that all organized. I think they have 350 just about that moment uh, when the gates were opened and, and the, those who were liberated uh, expressed their emotions and their feelings of, of when, when the GIs came through the gates. And you, we have stories also they do of just that moment and how the, how the liberators themselves felt. And it is sort of the hinge of the story for our new liberation pavilion, which will open in about two years from now. Uh, and we have a, a, a little theater that will just scroll those those, those stories. I mean, there's one uh, that uh, Rob knows I, I love about uh, Max Durst, who was at the Ebensee concentration camp, a subcamp of Mauthausen. And he talks about they, they come in, these battle-hardened warriors, and he says, we're standing there, and they're looking at us, and they're crying, and we are jubilant and he says we don't know the words but we're singing yankee doodle dandy <laughs> and they're standing there crying and looking at us i mean it's a it's a it's a very emotional moments uh, that you you have there and and that's the beginning of and that's of course before ve day but as rob said that's a very powerful hinge in the story and, and in the museum story too both up through ve day and then uh, the fall of Japan, BJ Day, and, and the larger legacy of the war, what we fought for, what, what did it mean after all? You know, we talk about that here recently. We're talking about the exhibits. Was it just victory, uh, the cost of victory? I mean, the Germans had won, as Rob says. They, they'd they say that too, you know. So, uh, but we, we think it had a, a moral dimension to it. Well, and, and, and I've, I've had the privilege of working uh, with both of you and the larger museum community on the, the Liberation Pavilion. And, and I will say that uh, the emotional content of that moment is, is still so strong. And I think it's something that's lost uh, in most of the history we write, H how emotional and how, how morally significant that, that moment was. Zachary has a question about popular culture. Sure. Yeah, so after the war, we, we see a, a burst of popular culture uh, about World War II and about uh, heroic American efforts in World War II. Are these accurate portrayals of American actions in the war, or, or do they portray uh, accurately the, sh the sheer violence and, and horror of the end of the war? Yeah, I think that... Good question, Zachary. I think films made in the sort of, I don't know, with the, the films I watched growing up in the 60s, the... the, the German soldiers seem to be the stupidest people on the planet. American <laughs> soldiers could, could wing you at 300 yards with a handgun. I mean, it's just really amazing stuff. It was cartoony. I, I think that starting with a film like Saving Private Ryan, we recently celebrated the 20th anniversary, talk about all of us feeling a little older. Sp Steven Spielberg really tried in the opening 20 minutes of that film to show what combat in World War II was like. And it was a horror, I, I, the second time I used the word, it was a horror show for everyone involved. Whether you're on the winning side or the losing side, whether we, we think we fought a good fight, and we, we know the Nazis were fighting a bad fight, but whatever side you're on, high explosives and bullets whizzing past your head and, and the chaos and the screams and the noise and the smoke, um, I, I think that's a better evocation of, uh, of World War II uh, on screen. And I don't think it does any damage. I don't think it does any insult to 
to, to American or to allied troops who, who really did, you know, rid the world of a pest in Adolf Hitler. I, I do think, you know, getting back to what we talked about in the terms of the, of the liberation of the camps, it's entirely possible up to that point, you could be an allied soldier saying, this darn war, what the heck are we doing here? I just want to go home. This is stupid. It's how soldiers talk, right? But, but until you walked into Dachau or Buchenwald, and then suddenly, you know, Nick's right. There was a moral dimension, and you probably realized it. So I don't mind, you know, singing that song. I don't mind singing a patriotic song, Zachary. I, I do think that, you know, there's there's been some pretty silly movies made about World War II. Yeah. And I think there were uh, heroic moments that uh, occurred at the end of the war. I mean, there was a reason why the, the Wehrmacht wanted to uh, to surrender to, to the Americans and the Brits instead of the Soviets. I mean, uh, that was a... Uh, I think they understood that, that there was a, a fairness there and a, and a, and a, that, that wouldn't exist on, on the other side. But uh, And then you have the Monuments Men story, which we're going to also tell in the Liberation Pavilion. Here we've got uh, Eisenhower and the United States Army commissioned these curators and museum directors to go find the, the, the art of the Western world that had been sculptures and it's stolen and looted by the Nazis and all over Europe and uh, and hidden them in caves and salt mines and and here they are in the last months of the war trying to find all this and recover this uh, precious art of, of Western civilization right down to the closing uh, days and hours of the war at Altausen say in the salt mine there had been rigged for destruction and the uh, the get altarpiece was there and and other fabulous. Uh, artwork and 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 with the help actually of the austrian resistance they they were just hours before the the end of the war and then and then there's a, the oss the great sorry book i just read recently this return to the reich of freddie meyer a jewish refugee to america was came back and fought in the on the u.s army got into the oss and parachuted first uh, well first he was stationed in italy but he parachuted in austria in the tyrol outside of innsbruck uh, impersonating a, a, a Wehrmacht officer in the wow. last months of the war to because Eisenhower was worried that, uh, that Hitler had this last redoubt up in the Alps uh, and uh, he was impersonating a Wehrmacht officer he ended up uh, was captured by the Gestapo waterboarders and then uh, convinced them the Americans were almost there and he convinced the, the Nazi leader of Tyrol to surrender all the German troops to the Americans without firing a shot uh, when the Americans were about 30, 40 miles away. I mean, there are those heroic uh, stories that you find, and, and he was fluent in French and German, and, and he pulled it off. I mean, these are, these are amazing, amazing stories. So there's, uh, there's some truth to that. It doesn't mean that they were uh, all, all, all perfect by any means. I mean, it's war, you know, but, right. Uh, right. Uh, and, and, and Hollywood does what they do, you know, so, right. uh, uh, and there's that this patina, the moral patina gets exaggerated to some extent. I mean, uh, you know, the the good war sort of uh, mythology that uh, er erupts and America is always on the side of the angels, you know, sort of thing. Right. Well, and so, Nick, that's actually where I wanted to go for, for our closing. We always like to close our, our podcast episodes with a, a forward-looking um, element. How does this history help to inform us going forward? How can it help improve our democracy? What are the correct lessons? Clearly, uh, the war was a war with, with, with a moral mission attached to it. If there was a just war, there, this was it. 
Uh, but on the other hand, um, that doesn't mean that the United States was error free. It doesn't mean that that our power our power had no limits. Uh, what are the correct lessons that we should learn, especially now in the 21st century when we're in this really difficult transition, understanding who we are as a society and and where we where we are in the world? Well, I mean, I'll answer it. Rob and I've been in the thick of this for several years as we developed the, the major themes of the post-war era from 45 to as far forward into the last 75 years as we can go in the Liberation Pavilion. I mean, we talk about the legacy of the war, and we've sketched out a, a story that uh, that reflects the, the, the major values of our country with regard to uh, uh, FDR's uh, vision uh, before the war even began of the four freedoms, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from fear and want, as, as uh, he embedded those in his war aims in the Atlantic Charter and it envisioned a United Nations. So his vision of victory, uh, even nine months before Pearl Harbor, uh, was uh, a post-war settlement that Rob and I talk about as sort of the soft power uh, side of things that human rights becomes a, a major legacy of the war. It was uh, that that impulse or that that uh, vision was uh, further intensified by the discovery in the in, of the Holocaust and the inhumanity of, of what happened there and, and the Nuremberg trials. But the United Nations was already envisioned um, in the Atlantic Charter. And uh, so those values in these international institutions and partnerships um, that uh, that come out of the war, the, the NATO, and um, and actually found out just checking the other day because we knew we'd have this. We, there was a poll like the Gallup poll called the Roper poll. Hmm. And uh, the 1st of March, uh, they asked, would you be supportive of a world organization after the war to try to preserve peace? and and uh, and and eighty uh, percent of Americans said yes. Uh, and whereas today, United Nations might not have such a strong right. uh, a reputation uh, among Americans, but but I think those values were were something that that we fought for. And the arc of, of history and those those streams of of human rights and civil rights and women's rights at home. Uh, you know what we how how it transformed our country and America. The end of colonialism. Uh, I mean, that took some years, but many of the colonial countries became democracies. So under the the broad umbrella of the Pax Americana, let's say that, uh, and there and Rob could talk about the hard power there. Uh, yeah, let me let me jump in here, Nick. Yeah, you're a shameless liberal. <laughs> <laughs> Nick and I talk about this a lot. You know, the, I do agree with Nick. Every word he just said, the international uh, organizations, um, international cooperation, the necessity to be open to the world. That is the legacy of World War II. There's no doubt. And we, we hope we're not losing that post-war legacy. But, I'll, you know, I'll throw in a word for hard power, too. World War II proved that when push comes to shove, the way to deal with the disturber of the peace is... It's to kick him until he's down and then keep kicking him until he disappears, which is what we wound up doing with Hitler. And I, I think along with the United Nations, I, I think there also has to be some understanding that at, at the end of the day, hard and soft power have to work together to maintain peace and order abroad. Yeah. 
And I would say, Jeremy, you're just taping a conversation that Nick and I have been having for months. Well, and I think it's so crucial. In some ways, one could argue that the the history of World War II and the end of the war is probably more important now than than it's been in a long time as as we rethink who we are as a society and and our place in the world. And and your emphasis upon international cooperation of soft power kind and hard power kind, I think, is so significant. Um, To our understanding of American uh, American democracy. And since we're talking about VE Day here, May 8th, I think uh, for Americas and, and for freedom-loving people and democracies, it was a symbol of victory, of, of, of peace, and aspirations for a better world. And 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 that meant a world where ultimately, in, in, in the aftermath of the war, where America exercised uh, moral authority uh, at home and abroad, not always perfectly, uh, of course, uh, but this has been our aspiration since 45. And and I believe that uh, up until recent years, we stood as a beacon of freedom to uh, and democracy for people of the world. So that's part of the good war mythology that uh, I guess I subscribe to a little bit, but uh, recognizing the imperfections of, of how that's been executed in the last 20, 25 years. Uh, the, the, I think it's disassembling uh, uh, that. Uh, but look, that's a, a lot better than we did between World War One and World War Two. So there hadn't been another World War uh, in 75 years. Yeah. Rob, you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, I've spent much of my time wallowing in the Treaty of Versailles, Jeremy, much of my right. personal career. Uh, and certainly compared to the peacemakers of 1919, the peacemakers of, of, of 1945 had their eye on, on, I think, on bigger issues than necessarily punishing the the, the uh, losing side. There was some of that, certainly, no, no doubt. But I, I think they took a pretty broad view. And I, I think we have a lot to be uh, grateful for. I I think really when you get right down to it, the, the, the legacy of 1945 it's one world and we have to be open to the rest of the world. And if we try to close ourselves off, we, we may come up with apparent solutions, but not real ones for even for our own problems. So here's hoping that, that, uh, that we come out of the current crisis with a new appreciation for the, for, for one another, not just in this country, but all over the world. I I love it. I think that's a a wonderful note to close on Zachary. do, Do you find, and do others of your generation, find uh, World War II inspiring for a new world, for creating an open world and a world of human rights, what Nick and, and Rob have talked about. I mean, we certainly hope so at the World War II Museum because we need your generation to come and visit the museum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, Zachary, what, what, how, how do you think about World War II? Well, I think that my generation finds World War II uh, very fascinating and, and a very important topic. I think it really brings forth the values that American society was founded on. And it allows us uh, in many ways to see if we've met those goals or if we haven't. In, in, in many ways, the end of World War II is a benchmark that we need to meet as a society. And it allows us to reexamine that every year when the anniversary uh, on May 8th comes up again. Right. Well said. Well said. Well, I think we've, we've only scratched the surface here, but we've had, I think, a, a wonderful discussion about uh, the historical resonances from 1945 to today, the difficulties of that moment, the uncertainties, the violence, the suffering and sacrifice, and the legacies and lessons for us going forward. Uh, Rob and Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the, the right. crucial educational role you play. 
Well, thank you very much, Jeremy. Keep on doing your good work too. And we're, we're glad that you're part of our National World War II Museum family. Absolutely. I'm delighted to work with both of you. And Zachary, thank you for your wonderful poem as always. Okay. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.